And I'm thankful for that song that you sang, Megan. And uh, this uh, reminder that my faith is not dependent upon me holding on to Christ, but that Christ holds on to me. Because if it was about me, then I would fail. But he never fails. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. This is... Follow with me as I read along. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the reading of the Word of God. Heavenly Father, I pray to you that my words would be your words, and that your words would come through with clarity, with precision, with power, and with effect upon the hearts and minds of your people, that they may be further conformed into the image of Christ and that you may receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. Amen. There's one question which every human being must answer. One question which will determine the eternal destiny of every person on this planet and in history. One question which every human being will eventually answer. And it is that question which Jesus asked of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? During Jesus' earthly ministry, there was a lot of opinions, a lot of rumors, a lot of beliefs about who he was. And as the reports about him and his popularity grew, so did the stories and the beliefs about who he was. Some said that he was a prophet. Others said that he was just another religious teacher attempting to gain a following amongst the Jews. And some believed that he was the Messiah, the son of David. But even for those who truly believed that he was the Messiah, even their beliefs about the Messiah and what he would do were a bit off. We fast forward about five or six decades later to the time at which the Apostle John would write this epistle. And the opinions and beliefs about Jesus Christ, his teachings, his nature, and his works grew. Just as the church of Jesus Christ grew in the first century, so would the heretical views of Jesus Christ and the adherence to such views grow as well. There's many cults and many followings and and, um, different beliefs about this man, Jesus, who he was, um, the content of his teaching, his miracles, the claims of his followers. And many of the New Testament writers address these views in their epistles, or they allude to them, these false views. We see the writer of the letter to the Hebrews allude to some of these false views 
in the first couple chapters of his letter as he, the, he writes to believers, to Jewish background believers, to strengthen their faith. They're, they're, they're tempted to fall away from um, Christ and uh, to turn back to Judaism. And there is also those that weren't quite sure about Jesus and whether or not to follow him. And so he writes to them, um, to those who were believers, to strengthen their faith in the Messiah. And he writes to those who aren't quite sure to make that step of faith and to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so as he writes to them, he asserts the true nature and works of Jesus Christ while at the same time reproving those false views of Christ from those who discounted his, uh, his claims to be the Messiah. He says that, that Jesus wasn't just an angel. He wasn't another prophet. But he was God in the flesh. He was the Messiah. And, and, and this is the point because... If you're unsure about who this man Jesus is, whether or not he is the son of God, you're unsure about your faith and you're tempted to fall away. You still have to answer the question, who is this man Jesus? Even if you fall away from the faith, you still have to come up with an excuse of why you believed in the first place. And you might say, well, you know, I, I was duped or, or you know what, he, he really was just a religious teacher or he, he was a good man because you, you don't just fall away. You have to have an excuse. You have to have a claim for who Jesus is. Whether that answer is right or not. And so it, when John writes his letter, 1 John, towards the end of his life, towards the end of the first century, there's similar reasons why he's writing it. And his main purpose for this letter is stated in chapter 5, verse 13, in which he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, one of the greatest issues in, in the Christian life and ministry is probably one of the issues that comes up most often in counseling, um, whether that's just formal counseling or informal counseling, is the issue of assurance. Do I really know that I'm saved? Do I really have eternal life? And, and rightfully so, because what could be more important than salvation? There's nothing more important than salvation, than knowing whether or not you have eternal life. And so this is why John writes his letter, so that those, those believers who may be persecuted or are facing persecution in the coming days, or who are... Um, being assaulted by false teachers and heretical views about Christ and their faith is shaken, he writes to them that, that they might know that they truly have faith. Or, or that they don't, to confirm whether they do or they not, they, they don't, and if they don't, then they can come to faith. And so he writes in such a way that the readers would be able to validate their faith by examining themselves in accord to what he has written. And so he writes this letter and he fulfills that purpose for that letter with a series of tests. There's a series of tests throughout this letter, both in doctrine and practice, by which the readers can examine themselves to see if they are truly in the faith. And the first of these tests, which is not only the first in order, but the first in importance, is a doctrinal test concerning the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And and in this passage today, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John gives us four apostolic assertions concerning the person of Jesus Christ by which we are to verify and strengthen our faith in him. Verse 1, 
that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And this first assertion right here in verse 1 is the assertion of the humanity of Christ. And, and, and notice that John did not write, I. He did not say, that which I have heard, that which I have seen, that which I have looked upon and have touched with my hands. But he writes in the plural, we. This is, this is not merely the isolated opinion of one man, but it's, it's the united testimony of the whole of the apostles and the followers of Jesus. It, it, you know, as in, you know, if we turn to the beginning of the book of Acts and, and one of the, the first sightings of, of Jesus, um, you know, before his ascension, after his resurrection, is that he was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. And this is in the similar um, vein of truth that, that there is, this is not just me speaking, though I am an apostle, but this is all of us, that which we have seen. And, and notice how the, the perception starts with what we have heard, and, and it goes deeper. What we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and that in which we have looked upon, almost as if we observed closely, we, we investigated, and then we touched. It goes deeper and deeper into different uh, sensory perceptions of this man, Jesus. That their, their experiences with Jesus, his, his personality, his demeanor, his speech, his stature, his stamina, his teachings, everything physical about Christ, that, that this was truly a man. And, and as John is writing this five or six decades later, you know, it, it, it reminds me of, you know, some of the, the recalls of people and, and memory and how certain significant events in your life you can remember with crystal clarity while other short-term things you forget. Um, I, I think of being a veteran and having talked with other veterans and, and uh, oftentimes in hospice I run into a World War II veteran or a, you know, a Korean War veteran. I hear their stories and, and how they can um, explain in great detail those significant events during their combat deployments. And I remember one such story that I heard, um, and this wasn't me personally, but while I was in Okinawa and, and there was um, going on a museum tour and, and the curator was talking about um, these World War II vets that would come over from time to time and, and take battlefield tours, and he had one that came over and told him a story about um, one of the battles there. And how he had to, um, he was a machine gunner, and he, uh, one of his assistants ha had gotten wounded, and, and, and they were getting overwhelmed, and he had to be withdrawn, and a tank came up to provide cover, and, and he had to leave his machine gun while he grabbed a hold of his fellow, uh, fellow Marine, and he would be dragged back. And so in leaving that machine gun, he, he buried it in the foxhole. Well, 50 years later, he, he tells this story to the museum curator, and the museum curator says, do you think it's still there? He said, well, we can see it. And he, he goes back to the place. There's construction. There's developments. The landscape has changed. And he goes back, and he says, you know, I, I, remember, I, see, I remember those trees. And you know what? I, I think right here in this spot, and sure enough, they dug down three feet, and there it was 50 years later. And he had not been there in 50 years since that battle. Had not been there. And he said, this guy couldn't tell me what he ate for breakfast, but yet he knew exactly where this was. You know, and uh, it just makes me think of the apostles. And they're, when they walked with Jesus, I mean, just their natural ability to remember. And 
you know, you could think of those times that, that perhaps, uh, you know, years later after when they spread up, spread up abroad to preach the gospel and every once in a while they might come back, you know, or, or meet up with one another and, and have those talks and, and say, do you remember when we were by the Sea of Galilee? You remember? Do you remember when Andrew said that? And that look on Jesus' face? Do you remember when Jesus was just wiped out, tired after that long day of ministry? Do you remember? There, and, and this is a bit of speculation, but they were with, they could remember all those details about Jesus' life. And, and not only could they remember from a, a natural sense and the natural recall, but from the sense of the Spirit empowering them to write Scripture. They knew. They, they knew that this was a man, yet he was God. He was truly man. There was no mistaking. And, and, and even Jesus' human experiences, how he grew in stature and wisdom and was raised within a family and experienced temptation, yet not having ever sinned, but being sinned against, even in the ways that we are sinned against uh, in our families, in, in the, the subtle ways, in the envy or rudeness or shortness with one another, in the sins of everyone around him. You, you think of that verse that, that um, talks about righteous Lot and his, his soul being tormented by the sins of those around him in Sodom. And how much more so the Son of Man, the Son of God. And he, he experienced every human experience. Yet being God, he did not sin. And as the writer of the Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's, he's able to sympathize with all the things that we struggle with. But more than that, he, he's able to sympathize with the weaknesses and the temptations that are unique to ministry, to the minister, in counseling and preaching and teaching, or even those um, you know, Sunday school or dealing with Children, he, he, he's able to sympathize with the whole range of human experience, human emotions, and we can go to him as our great high priest. And, and, and there's a reason why John lists all these sensations by which the humanity of Jesus was perceived and known. Because in that day, there was many of these heretical teachings about Jesus. A lot of people unsure, and there's this, the, the Gnostic movement was gaining steam, and, and that was a movement among the Greco-Roman world, uh, Gnostic, uh, from the Greek term gnosis, or gnostico, to know that there was this, this special knowledge, and, and it took ma- many different forms, but the, the basis of it was that that matter was bad, matter was evil, and everything spiritual was good, and there was this sense of dualism. And so some people would say that they could do whatever in the flesh so long as their spirit was all right, or they would um, try uh, strict asceticism and, 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 uh, and, and kind of a monastic lifestyle um, against the flesh to, for the sake of the spirit, um, But more than that, their special knowledge or gnosis was um, these different ideas that that there was different levels of God and different spirits and demigods that that they believed in and revelations of God. And so when when many of the people in the Greco-Roman world heard about this man, Jesus, they thought, well, you know, maybe he's just another demigod or another spirit. This is what he is. He, he, he's not really man. And so the, this, this heresy took different forms. And, and John's writing to say that, no, this Jesus truly was a man in every 
way that a man is, that a human being, he experienced every human experience. He was fully man and fully God. He was truly and fully human in contrast to what the Docetist Gnostics claimed, who believed that he merely appeared to be human. Nor was you know, Jesus' humanity and divinity separated in two persons as the Nestorians believed. Nor did the divine spirit of Christ descend upon the man Jesus at his baptism, but then leave him before his crucifixion as the Corinthian Gnostics believed. But Jesus Christ was fully human in every respect, yet without sin. And he had to be fully human. As the writer of Hebrews asserts, he, he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, therefore he had to be like his brothers in every respect, so that he may become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The whole point of a priest is to represent God to the people and to represent the people to God. And therefore, in order to be a perfect, faithful high priest, he must be man. John MacArthur and uh, Dick Mayhew in their their systematic theology, they they comment on this. And and they they say um, humanness involves undergoing, not just encountering, what mankind commonly experiences. From the start of his incarnate life until the end of his earthly journey, Jesus experienced birth, growth, exhaustion, sleep, hunger, thirst, anger, sorrow, weeping, compassion, love, joy, temptation, prayer, suffering, and death. And he also experienced first what all humans will eventually experience, that of the resurrection. He experienced every human emotion except those that would be associated with sin, such as guilt. He experienced all of it. And and he had to. I'd like you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5 and just see how it was vital for Jesus to take on human flesh, to become a man, to be fully human. And as, you know, the Apostle Paul, he, he writes Romans, and it is just the most comprehensive uh, writing of the gospel and the extent of the gospel and the application of the gospel uh, from Eternity past to eternity future and, and from all of the history of redemption. And he says in, in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Just as God created man in his likeness and his image, and and Adam, before he fell, was that perfect man, that representation of God on earth, and was to be uh, God's vice regent on earth to, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, but yet he fell. Jesus Christ had to become man as a type of Adam, to be that perfect man, to be what Adam 
never was to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And not just in the natural sense, but in a supernatural sense, in a spiritual sense. He had to become man to fulfill all righteousness under the law. He had to become man to fulfill the covenants. Of the covenants to Abraham and to his seed, the covenants to, uh, uh, that were given uh, through Moses and the law to fulfill the law, the covenant uh, to David to be the perfect king. He had to become man to fulfill those covenants and, and even the new covenant, primarily the new covenant. As a, as a writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He had to have flesh and blood so that we could have forgiveness of sin, so that he could be that perfect sacrifice for us. As writer to Hebrews goes on in chapter 10, verse 5, he says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body. You have prepared for me. He, he was given a body for the sole purpose of laying down that body to be crushed by Almighty God and to bear the punishment for the sins of His people as the faithful great high priest, our great high priest, to bear those sins for us. Therefore, He had to have a body. He had to be flesh and blood so that flesh could be crushed and that blood could be spilt on our behalf. Theologian Bruce Ware comments, he says, Our Savior must be fully man in order to take the place of men and die in their stead. And he must be fully God in order for the value of his sacrificial payment to satisfy the demands of our infinitely holy God. Man he must be. But a mere man simply could not make this infinite payment for sin. So that brings us to our second point. First, we saw the Apostle John's assertion of the humanity of Christ. And now we see the Apostle John's assertion of the deity of Christ. In verse 2 of 1 John 1, he says, The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. They, they, they not only, the apostles not only experienced the humanity of Christ, but as everybody during that time, during his earthly ministry, knew that there was something about this man, Jesus, they intuitively knew that he came from God. As Nicodemus said, Teacher, we know that no one can do the signs you do unless he is from God. And yet even Nicodemus was befuddled, a little bit confused, because his view of the Messiah was primarily of the second coming, in which he would conquer and reign in righteousness. He, he, he didn't... He, he, he didn't uh, remember Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would come as a suffering servant to bear the sins of his people. And so he was a bit confused, and, but yet they knew there was something about him. And as John says in his gospel, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. That the Word, the eternal Word, the knowledge of God, the revelation of God. You know, in the Bible, we call the Bible the Word of God. And it is the Word of God. And pastors and theologians would rightly call this special revelation. In contrast to the general revelation that, that, that man sees in creation. That, that um, as, uh, as the Apostle Paul writes, that, that mankind is without excuse 
because a general revelation, because what has been uh, made has been made clear to them throughout creation that there is a God. But we have a special revelation to us in the Word of God given through the prophets and the apostles concerning those particular details which God would have us know about Him and about life in this world. But not only is the Word of God special revelation, but Jesus Himself is special revelation. That God revealed Himself to mankind and to His people through His Son. And this is most clear you know, apostles, there, there's, there's many things they, they did not fully understand and, and things they, they would not understand until, as Jesus said, the Helper would come, the Holy Spirit would come to help them understand. But there was a point in, in Jesus' earthly ministry where this revelation was revealed. And that it was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's just interesting that you know, mountains have a special place in the Word of God. That He uses mountains to reveal Himself. E- either, you know, in-, in Eden, that many people believe that Eden was raised up. It was up on a, either a plateau or a mountain or in a mountain valley. And, and we-, we think of Mount Moriah, where-, where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. We think of, of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb where Moses went and Elijah went. And Jesus, to show his glory, goes to a mountain towards the end of his ministry. And in Matthew 17, we, we read, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents or tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And rightfully so. Because this was God. This was their creator standing before them. In the man Jesus, fully man, yet for a moment, unveiling His humanity to show His glory. And it's interesting, like I said, mountains have a special place, and it's interesting that Moses and Elijah were there, both of them who had approached God on a mountain. But more than that, the the fact that Moses representing the law and and Elijah representing the prophets, the, the, the fullness of the special revelation of God at that time, to confirm that this is indeed the Son of God. This is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And throughout the history of Israel, God was, in a sense, distant. And rightfully so, because He is holy, holy, holy. Separate. Separate from Man, we are made in His image, but yet he is, he is not like us. We are made like Him, but He is not like us, in a sense, because He is beyond human comprehension. He, he is pure, He is holy, He is just. Every one of His attributes are perfect. And this reminds me of that time when, when Moses... You know, in the midst of his struggles in the wilderness and the complaining and murmuring of the Israelites, and he's worn out from ministering to them and leading them 
and, and trying to be the man of God that he's supposed to be. And, and oftentimes this happens to ministers. That in, in, in the midst of the, the toils of struggles with, with ministry and the unique um, spiritual struggles that come with ministry, what we need most is a reminder of who God is. And so Moses goes to God and he says, please show me your glory. And he said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Because man is sinful and God is holy. Yet, when Christ came into the world, John says in his gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus Christ, He has made Him known. And in, this, in the Greek, it, from that term underlying, He has made Him known, we get the term exegesis. That... that Jesus has exegeted the Father to us in His own person. The, the significance of this is, is that there is eternal life in and through Christ alone. Because He is eternal. He is God. He, he has created all things, as, as John says in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, most, of, most of the time in, in evangelicalism and and even in many conservative churches and, and as conservative Bible-believing Christians, we, we tend to think uh, more of the Father in terms of creation as the Creator. We, we rightfully think of Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but we tend not to think so much of Him as our Creator. But every member of the Trinity was active and present in creation in all the works of God. They work in unison. As Paul says to Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. That, that term that all things hold together within Him points to that not only did He create all things, but He sustains all things. As uh, R.C. Sproul has said, there's not a maverick molecule in the whole universe. And, and, and Jesus is upholding the universe. He is sustaining it. He, he is providing for us. And, and just to think, even in his humanity, there was a sense, though he did lay aside some of his divine prerogatives or, or divine um, exer, uh, activities or um, things that God does for a moment, to be fully man, he was still upholding the universe as a babe. It, it, as deep and profound that mystery is, it, it, it's he created all things. He sustains all things. He's given us life. And he's come to give eternal life. Jesus Christ is not a created being, as the early Arians would say in that heresy, or any of the any of the other Gnostic her heresies or there, there are certain heretical groups in the first and second and third centuries. 
He's not created as the Mormons or or Jehovah's Witnesses would say. He's he's not the brother of Lucifer. He's not the, though they would say he is a high being, he's not created. Nor was he a mere prophet as the Muslims say. He is the one true God. He is very God of very God. And, you know, you, you can look through church history. And even now, and every heresy, every false teaching um, really is an attack on the person of Jesus Christ. And many of the Christian groups, they, they not only say wrong things about Christ, but they have a wrong Christ. And I would go so far, we, we sometimes don't think of it this way, but I would go so far as to say the Roman Catholics have a different Jesus. Because their Jesus, his sacrifice isn't sufficient to pay for their sins. Their Jesus can be um, called down upon by a human uh, priest to be re-sacrificed over and over again in the blasphemous uh, ritual of the Mass. Their, their, their Jesus... Um, submits to his earthly mother who was a sinner. And so I, I don't even think they have the same Jesus. No, Jesus Christ is fully man and he is fully God. And throughout the history of the church, we had have to defend this against all these heretical views that keep coming and keep coming. And oftentimes Satan will take the same view and repackage it in different terminologies and give it a different name, but it's the same thing. And today, Gnosticism is alive and well. And we think of the most earliest creeds, the the Nicene Creed in in 325. At that time, there's the heretic Arius. He, he He had taken a lot of the church... And duped a lot of the church, and, and, and uh, thankfully, God always raises up his champions and his defenders of the faith. And he, he raised up Athanasius, and, and they came, they, they created a creed. And, and though I'm not, I'm not for the ritualistic um, re- reciting of creeds over and over again, there is a sense where we, we need to know. We need to know you know, the battles that the church has faced and, and those documents that, that we have crafted, though some of them aren't perfect. In, in fact, I, w- I would say that they're, none of them are perfect. Only the Word of God is perfect, but we need to be able to articulate our faith. And it reminds me of this Nicene Creed that says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary, and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. John MacArthur writes concerning the humanity and deity of Christ and this, this profound mystery, yet glorious truth. And he says, this is a stunning thing to think about. All the people who will spend forever in hell will spend forever there because they will never be able to pay for their sins. And not only that, they will continue to sin. And so they will continue to have to pay for their sins. And yet Jesus in three hours, would pay in full for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe. How? How is that? 
because he is eternal. Because an infinite amount of wrath can only be absorbed by an infinite person. God is just. He's perfect in all his attributes. And he's perfectly just. He's perfectly holy. His wrath, his vengeance is just. But so is his love and his mercy and his grace. And he will judge every single sin. As um, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, he will bring every act into judgment. As Jesus said, he will judge you for every careless word, every thought. And that judgment will be poured out on every sin in one of two places. Either you bear the punishment for your sins in hell for all eternity, or the Son of God bore it for you at Calvary because he's eternal and he was able to absorb that eternal wrath and to make propitiation for our sins. And there's a sense that too often we think of the suffering at Calvary in terms of the physical. But there was a a spiritual, eternal uh, judgment being poured upon him that we don't fully understand. So John writes to us. He, He gives us the assertion of the humanity of Christ And the assertion of the deity of Christ. And third, we have the assertion of the union with Christ. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's For for Jews, they, they, they could not fully grasp this, except some of the most, uh, I guess, godly Old Testament saints, but to, to come to God, holy God, and, and to be reconciled to God was just beyond comprehension, but then to have fellowship with God? To be one with God? And yet John says that we proclaim Him to you so that you too may have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul, in prison, when he's talking to the Colossians, he he says that God has made Him known. He said, he said uh, he, he, he's thankful for this, that he became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known in Colossians chapter 1. He said, this mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This mystery which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. That Christ, that God, would be in you. Now, R.C. Sproul comments on this. He says, the union of believers is grounded in the mystical union of Christ and His church. The Bible speaks in a two-way transaction that occurs when a person is regenerated. Every converted person becomes in Christ. At the same time, Christ enters into the believer. If I am in Christ and you are in Christ, and if... He is in us, and we experience a profound unity in Christ. And some of us, we, we know this experientially. If we go visit a church or we see meet a new believer, there, there is this sense of this profound sense of fellowship and unity with that other believer. And some more than others, you know, by way of personality, but there is that, that spirit resides within us, and we have something we have a bond that's closer than flesh and blood and that that bond that union was created by Christ as as Peter says in 1 Peter 3:18 that Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God as our faithful high priest he brings us to God and we are made to be in union with God And because of that union with God, we have joy. 
you know, the, the Apostle John, he, he asserts Christ's humanity. He asserts his deity and the eternal life in Christ. He, he asserts union with Christ. And because of union with Christ, union with one another, and union with God, our Creator. And because of these things, because of union, he asserts joy in Christ. This is the result. The Apostle John says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And, and throughout the Bible, there's a theology of joy. You know, we, 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 we see these, this concept of joy. We, see, we read about joy. Uh, uh, Jesus tells a parable of the kingdom of heaven. He said, it's like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. He found it, and then he covered up, and then he goes in his joy. He sells everything. All that he has, he sells it with joy because of this treasure that he, he found. And then he goes and buys that field because of the joy. He's willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of this treasure. And that is that treasure that we have in Christ. And, and even Jesus says that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's joy for the sinner who comes to God in Christ and receives salvation, there's joy in heaven for the sinner that repents because the angels know that that only, that only happens unless there's a work of God that He's moving in the heart of that sinner to turn Him. Is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. But more than that, there's joy in our service. As, as John the Baptist, when, when he... After he baptizes Jesus, his disciples come to him, and John had a ministry. He had, every people were coming to John. There was something about John. There was more about Jesus, but there was something about John. And people were coming to him, and, and then um, his disciples said, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered him, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. There's joy in salvation for the sinner. There's joy in salvation for the angels in heaven. And there's joy in our service, in, in, in gospel ministry. As John the Baptist says, my joy is complete. I've completed my ministry. As the forerunner to Christ, he's fulfilled his ministry. And because he fulfilled his ministry... There is joy, and, and even the Apostle Paul says this to the Philippians. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And this is what the Apostle John is writing. He's, he's, he's writing these things so that the readers would have assurance in his joy, and not only his joy, but the joy of the Apostles would be complete. That they would fulfill their ministry to the people of God, and there would not only be joy in the sinner and joy in heaven, but joy in the minister. Charles Hodge, he writes, to be in Christ is the source of the Christian's life. To be like Christ is the sum of his excellence. To be with Christ is the fullness of his joy. And, and there's... There's a great significance to this theology of joy. Because you will always do what you want to do. Deep down, you do what you want to do. If, if, if you sleep in, it's not because you can make all the excuses you want, but in that moment, you, what you really wanted was to sleep. You always do what you really want to do. It's just our hearts are 
they control us. And so we, we will, in effect, do what brings us the most joy. And we are made, we are created to find our joy in God, to find our joy in Christ. He's to be the fullness of our joy. But because we're sinners, rather than worship the Creator who is blessed forever, we exchange the truth for a lie and worship the creation, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. But when we turn to Christ, there is joy in our service, and we pursue that service with joy. And ultimately, we're pursuing Christ with joy. Because as the psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you, have, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's, there's nothing that this creation in this world that can bring us more joy than God. There's nothing. It would be illogical to think that the creation could fulfill us more than the Creator. We were created for Him, yet because of our sin, we live for ourselves. But in redemption, He brings us to God, and we are redeemed and recreated in the image of Christ, and our wills are realigned to His wills, and we live for Him. And as we live for Him, we experience that joy, and that joy is, an, in a sense, an indicator of assurance. It's proof of our salvation. So we have seen in this first chapter, we've seen the assertion of the humanity of Christ, that God sent him to become a man, to take on human flesh, to be our perfect sacrifice. We've seen the assertion of his deity. We've seen the assertion of fellowship and union with Christ, with God. And we've seen the assertion of our joy in Christ. And that leaves us with one question to answer and to be sure of. Who do you say that this man Jesus is? Who is he to you? Is he just another religious teacher or is he God? Is he, is he your joy? Is he your hope? Is he the purpose for why you were created? Is he your Lord and Savior? When, when Jesus posed this question to his disciples, Peter replied to him. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the Catholics and, and many evangelicals sadly get this wrong. The rock is not Peter. The rock, grammatically, is the testimony. That's the rock. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the long-awaited one, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the rock upon which Christ will build His church. The testimony that He is God, that He is the Christ, that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that through Him and Him alone you may have eternal life, and that He is one day coming back to judge the living and the dead. And he will renew all things and reign in righteousness and make all things new. And in him we have life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you know our hearts. You know our minds. You know our fickleness. You know how easily we are deceived, how easily we are tempted, how easily we are led astray. And Lord, because of our weaknesses, we not only need a Savior, but we need your Spirit, and we need your Word to teach us, to guide us, to direct us. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for your truth. 
We thank you that you have not left us in the darkness, but have shown your light upon us through Jesus Christ. Help us to live lives worthy of his name and worthy of his gospel. In his name we pray. Amen.